If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, we will be speaking with Rick Alexander about this newfangled type of corporation known as the B Corp. But let me first remind listeners that we are getting close to the deadline to register for our Strategic Planning Facilitator Cohort. As I've mentioned on previous episodes, this is a great opportunity for your organization to develop a strategic plan at a much lower cost. It does require that you have a volunteer leader with the bandwidth to shoulder the facilitation work, and we will guide your volunteer leader every step of the way. Check this out at SuccessfulNonprofits.com to ensure that you and your organization don't miss out. But now, let's start talking about B Corps. Before we do, though, I want to harken back, way, way back to 1894. That's the year that the United States government first began to recognize organizations as exempt from some of the tariffs or taxes that they faced. Now, do you know what else was created in the late 1800s? Probably a term you're familiar with, which is robber baron. And if you recall, they were called robber barons because they were often seen as doing harm to the public good while increasing their own wealth. And I don't think it's an accident, nor is it a coincidence, that the social sector was recognized from a tax standpoint in response to growing wealth in the hands of a few that also resulted in, frankly, some antisocial behavior on the part of those companies. Now, let's fast forward over a 100 years into the future, and we are seeing something just as revolutionary in the corporate structure today. And like a lot of consultants who go to more than my fair share of nonprofit conferences, I am surprised that these conferences are not a buzz with the B Corp, with conversations about the B Corp and strategies around it. You have probably heard of B Corporations, but may be a bit fuzzy about exactly what they are. They're for-profit businesses that voluntarily agree to meet standards relating to governance, workers, community, the environment, the product or service that it provides, that kind of thing. 
Essentially, they strive to meet the standards that so many of our nonprofits aspire to while also making a profit. That's kind of called a win-win. So we're going to learn a lot more about B Corps because today's guest, Rick Alexander, is kind of the godfather of the B Corp. Rick is the author of the book, Benefit Corporation Law and Governance, Pursuing Profit with Purpose. And he's head of legal policy at B-Lab, a nonprofit organization dedicated to enabling people to use businesses as a force for good. Before working at B-Lab, Rick practiced law for 26 years. During that time, he was selected as one of the 10 most highly regarded corporate governance lawyers worldwide. And let me share with you that I've also seen Rick in action as a nonprofit board member, and he is definitely a good governance disciple who practices what he preaches. So let's just say Rick's got creds. Let's dive in to this conversation with Rick Alexander. Hey, Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dolph. Thanks for that great introduction. So I found it kind of interesting. You opened the book talking about the fact that when you first heard about B Corps, you were a little bit of a doubting Thomas. You were a little bit incredulous and not not necessarily immediately won over. Can you talk about that? Sure. And I would I would say that even sort of that might understate the premise. As you said, I spent twenty six years practicing law and my focus was really uh, transactions, corporate governance, you know, mergers and acquisitions, fundraising, preferred stock. And I did it as sort of a, a Delaware expert, because as people know, Delaware is sort of the heart of corporate law. Most public companies are incorporated in Delaware. And we really operated under a very simple model where you know, the purpose of the corporation was to make money and the, the directors had a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to, to sort of maximize the return that shareholders got, whether it was over the short term or the long term. And, you know, other issues that the corporation affected, uh, whatever your, you know, political leanings might be, should be taken care of by government regulation and things like that. So it wasn't the company's or the director's job to worry about the environment. They just had to follow the environmental laws. And it was the, the responsibility of, of the government to think about those externalities, uh, as economists would say. So when B-Lab came to Delaware and sort of promoted this new sort of law, the benefit corporation law in the early 2010s. I was on the, the, the bar group that maintained the Delaware corporate statute. And we, we just thought it was kind of cute and crunchy, uh, but not something for a serious corporate law jurisdiction like Delaware. So we sort of sent them on their way, but the BLA was persistent and they came back. Uh, and I ended up being the person in Delaware who was really tasked with looking harder. Actually, our governor, Jack Martell at the time, was very interested in the idea. Uh, and so as I looked into it, I, and I talked about this in the introduction to the book, I, I did some research and some thinking and, and eventually occurred to me that, you know, maybe the way I'd always been thinking about corporate law wasn't the only way and perhaps not even the best way. Interesting. And can you share a little bit more about your thinking and why you ended up feeling that way? Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the logic 
the logic of the traditional corporation, you know, this idea of shareholder primacy that, that directors are fiduciaries to the shareholders who, and they run the, the corporation for their benefit, is one that came out of an era uh, where people were worried in the early 20th century that as corporations became sort of more broadly owned and there was more and more public ownership of companies, so that it wasn't sort of owner operators, but they were worried that the managers would sort of run away um, with all the assets and, and just sort of run the corporation for their own benefit. And so the idea was to protect shareholders from that risk, protect their capital. And, and while shareholder primacy might be a good mechanism for that, you just have to sort of look around the world to see that there are a lot of negative effects because it's corporate activity that's behind um, you know, a lot of the, the carbon that's generated, a lot of food insecurity issues, a lot of inequality, all of that comes from corporate activity. And when you think about it, uh, corporations control a huge amount of the resources of our society, and they have lots of effects. Uh, and so the financial performance is just one effect. And if, you know, if, if you're measuring success by financial performance, but at the same time generating pollution or inequality or social unrest, uh, your balance sheet really isn't giving you a true picture. And so the idea of the benefit corporation uh, is to say directors have to be concerned about the return to shareholders, but they have an equal obligation to be concerned about the effect that the corporation has on other stakeholders, whether that's customers or employees or the community or the environment generally. And so, you know, I, I think having thought about it quite a bit, that, that probably that, that second way of running a corporation makes more sense. But importantly, right now, when we advocate for benefit corporation legislation, we're just advocating for an option, not a not a mandatory provision. Although I will I will tell you that since BLAB became uh, active in this area, promoting it at the state level, there has been a bill introduced in Congress by Elizabeth Warren to make all corporations that have a billion dollars or greater in sales benefit corporations. Wow! So that actually leads really well into one of the other questions I want to ask you, Rick. But before I do, let me say, one of the things I love about having a podcast is that I get to ask really smart people stupid questions sometimes. So I apologize, because some of these are going to seem like stupid questions, because neither myself nor my listeners really have waded deep into the river of Benefit Corp. So, you know, for someone who has waded in like you have, it might feel like these are really shallow questions. So I, I will just put that out there up front. Short of, for example, Congress passing legislation requiring that all corporations that are a billion dollars or more be B Corps, what's the carrot? What's in it for corporations to decide to either become or start as a B Corp? I think what I should do is maybe step back on just a little terminology to help everybody um, make some distinctions because there's a lot of bees flying around. Um, so, as you said, I work for a, for a nonprofit called B-Lab, and B-Lab's goal is to create tools and paths for for-profit companies to be a force for good in the world, to have positive impact on society and the environment. And 
their probably marquee product is something called a B Corp. And that's not the legal form that you and I have been talking about. A B Corp is a certification of a, of a corporation. So if you think about something like fair trade or organic, which is a certification for a product, B Corp is a certification for an entire company. So companies like uh, Patagonia or Dan and Yogurt, um, you know, they're the American subsidiary of, of, of Danone in France. Those are, those are certified B Corps. And that means they've gone through a, a complicated process of assessing their impacts across the board. And they've gotten a certain score. And we at B-Lab have verified that. And so that's a, that's a certified B Corp. And there's about 2,800 of those around the world. Part of getting your certification, though, is to take on a legal form uh, that ensures that you operate for the benefit of all your stakeholders, not in a shareholder privacy mode. So, for instance, and, and for, for corporations uh, like a Delaware corporation, there was no way to do that uh, before we passed legislation authorizing the benefit corp. Because the law in Delaware was, if you were a corporation, you operated for the benefit of your shareholders. So BLAS wanted, you know, companies that were incorporated in Delaware to be able to certify. And in order to do that, there had to be a corporate form available. And so they uh, lobbied for this law, and it's now been passed in Delaware and about 35 other states um, in the United States, and also in a couple other countries uh, in Italy. Uh, and in Colombia and South America. And then we're working around the world to pass that law. So those are the, there's, there's B-Lab, the organization, there's B-Corp, the certification, and then there's Benefit Corp, which is the legal form. And one other thing I'll say is that the legal form has sort of taken on a life of its own because there are many more Benefit Corps now than there are B-Corps. Lots of companies who you know, can't or don't want to, to use our certification are nevertheless using the law. And then to get to your question of, of the carrot, why would a company want to be a benefit corp? What's in it for them? Um, for some companies, the, the, the motivating factor might be they want to earn our certification. But for lots of other companies, um, they might say, well, this is just a better way to operate. I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I have somewhat of a social perspective, but... I want to raise capital. You might be a company that's think you might have a business idea and you're thinking about whether to be a nonprofit or a for-profit. And, and you might say, well, I want to be a for-profit, but I don't want to have that obligation to maximize the return to all my shareholders. I want to give them a return, but not a maximized return. And so for the entrepreneur, there's the ability to raise capital without having these absolute value maximum maximization obligations. You know, also, it can be very exciting to the workforce. A lot of the companies that we work with uh, will tell us that more important than the message to consumers is the message to their workers, especially the millennial workforce who, you know, care about purpose uh, as much as their paycheck. Um, but, but there is also the consumer-facing piece. Um, and there's also the, the ability to sort of engender trust with people in your network, whether they're uh, customers or suppliers uh, or jurisdictions. There's a company, a, a good example of this is a, a for-profit educational company called Lori Education that went public as a certified B Corp and a Delaware Benefit Corp. And, you know, that's a 
an industry that doesn't have the best reputation. And they were trying to sort of address that. And one of the things that was important to them was often when they were you know, competing for charters in different jurisdictions, they were competing with nonprofits. And they wanted to be able to say to the jurisdiction, although we're a for-profit entity, we're allowed to consider the interests of our students and the communities where we locate as importantly as we think about uh, our shareholders. And it's funny because as I think about um, Benefit Corps, and, and thank you, it, throughout the podcast now, when I'm talking about the legal structure, I'll, t- I'll say Benefit Corp. But as I think about Benefit Corp, and as I think about how that might apply for listeners who are primarily interested in the nonprofit sector, I do actually think about Benefit Corp as a possible structure for what we've traditionally thought of as nonprofits. So I find it interesting that, that one of the carrots is it might help companies that are in fields where their primary competitors will be nonprofits. There's that. I'll, I'll also say that there's a little bit of activity out there with forms. So if you have a nonprofit and you want to spin off or operate a business that's going to be more on the for-profit side and you want to raise some capital, um, you might use a, a benefit corp to do that. And that way your intellectual property and raise some money you know, in, in, and to people who expect a return, but they may be impact investors who are who care about the social issue as much as the return, and you're able to then operate that company as a benefit corporation so that, again, you can provide a fair return, but not a maximized return. When you said they're impact investors, I was going to ask, does that mean they're okay with a slightly lower or even much lower return than what they'd get somewhere else? And it sounds like they typically they are. Well, I would say that in the world of of impact investing, there are full return impact investors, and then there are those who are are not so full return, and and it's a spectrum. So if you have to think of the glass as half full or half empty, what percentage of the glass is full return impact investors, and what percentage of the glass is uh, um, not full impact return? I think that question really depends on your denominator. In other words, um, the biggest measure like, of, of impact returns will we'll say that there's something like $6 trillion in the U.S., which is about one-sixth of uh, investing money out there. But that includes everything that's in any sort of um, screened portfolio. So, you know, if you, if you buy the, you know, the Fidelity portfolio that screens out um, alcohol and tobacco and, and firearms, uh, that would count. And I think if you have a narrower definition of impact, then you're probably going to have a higher percentage who really care about impact as much as returns. I mean, there are some people who impact almost as a tool for return. So you see some of the, the big private equity houses like uh, TPG or Bain, you know, TPG getting together with Bono and uh, you know putting together a huge fund. And they think of this as, you know, an economic opportunity. They look at, uh, you know, the opportunity for renewables. They look at the opportunity um, to bring, uh, you know, business tools to the developing world. And they say, this is, a you know, there's no trade-offs here. It's all win-win. Um, and so that's one, one type of impact investing. But, but then there are really people who just say, you know, think of a, maybe an endowment that wants to 
you know, invest their money, but also they want their investing side to have as much impact as their as their grant side. They might they might be more interested in a in a true impact investment that trades off return. So for a nonprofit that is interested in maybe spinning off a business and spinning it off as a as a benefit corp, what types of professionals should they be having conversations with to determine if it's right for them? There's just the legal complexity of of making sure you have whatever controls are in place to separate the businesses because they'll they'll end up being a lot of shared services, uh, and you have to make sure that you know you're not using the the grants and the, the tax exempt money for your for your business. I think it's largely legal. I mean, obviously, there's going to be business questions that'll be different for every business, but I think getting it right legally. I will say that at B Lab, um, this isn't a great story, but. Uh, at Relab, when we did, we did this, the business ended up not working, but I think, I don't think it was that complicated in terms of, of the structuring. I mean, we had, you know, we had a, an experienced lawyer help us with those issues. We put some IP into, uh, into a, a media company. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've since rolled, raised some money and was not that successful. We've since rolled it in. It's a, it's a nice online property be the change media. Um, but it, 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 did, it didn't become what we were hoping it would become. But, but it, did, it did suggest to me that it's not that complicated. Are there many nonprofits across the country that currently have a, a benefit corp that they run? I don't, I don't know the numbers. I hear people talk about it, but I don't, I don't know how far along all these things are. You know, a lot of this is pretty new and there's a lot of discussion, but I just don't know how many people have actually done it. Are there any like stellar success stories that B-Lab points to when they talk to nonprofits and say, look at what this organization did and, and the benefit that it's had? Not in the hybrid space. I can't think of anything. All right. Totally fair. The next, I think, logical question, and, and a lot of folks that listen to this podcast, Rick, are people who are maybe interested in starting a nonprofit. Should people be considering maybe a benefit corp structure instead of a nonprofit structure? when they're thinking about starting an organization that will impact their community? Yeah. So <laughs> you know this better than I do that, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I have this good idea. It's going to have an impact. And wouldn't it be great to be tax exempt uh, and be able to get people to, you know, give us money to get started and then not worry about taxes if we're, if it's, if it's a sort of business where we get returns. But the issue with that is then you're in a constant fundraising mode. And that is much more difficult, you know, sometimes than raising permanent capital. And I think it's a very um, company-specific question. But what's nice about the Benefit Corporation is you get to have something that's between the traditional, if I raise money, then I'm only going to have to you know, I'm going to have to return money to shareholders at the maximum rate that I can versus being tax exempt uh, and, and only being able to raise charitable capital. So I think it's a, an option that people should be thinking about. You know, one thing I'll, I'll also say in that area is, you know, for, for people who are thinking about starting a nonprofit, a question we get a lot at B-Lab is, do you certify nonprofit? because you have all these tools about 
being environmentally mindful and treating your employees well. And that would go, you know, we think we'd score great because we care about those things. And the answer is we do not certify nonprofits. However, we do have a free online tool available, uh, which is a great tool. We use, we use our own tool at B-Lab. We, um, we go through our survey once a year. You know, we figure out where we can get more points and, and try to make a goal of, of doing that the next year. We've taken out, pulled out all the parts that relate to anything, you know, to do with uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So you can really focus on those if, if that's something you want to do. And it's, you know, the best part is it's free. That's really awesome. And so, so that's available at the B-Lab website. Yep. You just go on there, set up an account, and, and you can grade yourself. That is super cool. So I will make sure that we link to that as well in the show notes, because admittedly, that was one of the other, again, I promised to ask you, you know, you a smart person, some stupid questions. That was one of my questions. So <laughs> thank you. Another question that I know that I wanted to ask you, and this again is just my own ignorance, the entire benefit corp structure is really a relatively new concept for me. When you talk about the impact investors, are foundations able to be impact investors in benefit corps? So you have to talk to your tax lawyer. I'll say that. There's been some back and forth about whether you can you know, invest your corpus you know, for reasons other than return. I think there was a pretty good letter from the IRS about two years ago saying that you could. Um, but you have, you have to ask your tax advisor, but I, I do, I do think that it's an often neglected question, 501c3s that have, or, or tax exempt organizations that have endowments, how they're investing their money. And, you know, you find companies that have, you know, green policies, but they're investing in, uh, tar sands. And it's a, it's a, it's a really good thing, I think, for investment committees to think about, uh, and get some advice you know, from their, from their counsel about, but, but I, I think you should be able to think about some of these issues uh, and try to make some impact on the investing side. A couple of years ago, I interviewed uh, someone who was running uh, or ran a uh, major um, hospital system in the Midwest. And they actually made the strategic decision to take, I think, like a third or half of their endowment and invested in businesses in the communities that the, that the health system was in. And it really kind of helped those communities blossom and grow all around their hospitals. At the time when I first heard it, I was like, wow, that is revolutionary to take a piece of your endowment and say, instead of investing in Philip Morris, we're going to invest in the well-being and health of our community around us. Yeah, and guess what? If you, you know, reduce stress and all the other social determinants of health, then that's going to help with your caseload. I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's how the world should operate. Um, it's funny because at the beginning, you talked about Robert Barron's and of course, the the classic, you know, you've got the classic, you know, Carnegie's and Rockefeller's destroying the world and then, in you know, creating endowments to try to fix all the problems they created. Wouldn't it be so much better if we just had businesses operating in a sane, responsible, respectful manner? Exactly. Well, Rick, I have got to make sure I ask you the off the map question. And I actually have two of them because I walked in knowing one that I wanted to ask you, but now I've got a second one as well. Your book is dedicated to the memory of the 1,129 human beings 
who perished in the collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factory. And my guess would be, not to minimize the tragedy that happened there, you know, is that there have been other real catastrophes like that that have been caused by companies that are ignoring the social good of all of their stakeholders. So how did you choose that tragedy um, as the one that you wanted to dedicate your book to? A lot of different things go into that. Obviously, you could the list could go on forever. I thought it was poignant in the sense that so many garments uh, purchased here uh, in the United States in a very competitive industry where you know price point is everything to many people. And all along the supply chain, it's how much does it cost? How much does it cost? You know, how many pennies can I save here? And I would say, I always assume good intentions, that people along that chain are acting out of ignorance, not out of, you know, that they would be happy to pay more if it meant safety. And I also, and so it just seemed to be something that was very relevant, um, very that tragedy was very dri- very unnecessary, very driven by a profit motive, uh, and very addressable if there was more awareness and more tools uh, in our toolbox. Um, also, you know, separately, it's poignant in the sense that, you know, in the United States, we always talk about the Triangle uh, Shirtwaist Factory tragedy, which was something similar but happened a hundred years ago and, you know, would probably never happen now. And so again, this is something we can address and we have addressed, you know, in the United States closer to home. Uh, and, and we should just, you know, be finding tools to address that around the world. Definitely makes sense. My second off the map question for you. When I first picked up the copy of your book, I was confused by the title. And so at the very top, and, and I'll have to post a picture of this in the show notes, but at the very top, it says Benefit Corporation Law and Governance. And then in the center, in a beautiful blue box outlined in white and gray and blue-green, it says Pursuing Profit with Purpose. And so when you and I first got on uh, Skype today, I had to ask you, I had to say, well, when I talk about your book, is the title Pursuing Profit with Purpose? And then the subtitle, Benefit Corporation Law and Governance. Or is it the other way around? And you shared with me that that it starts Benefit Corporation Law and Governance with the subtitle of Pursuing Profit with Purpose. But there's an interesting story about that that I hope you'll share. You asked me that question and you prefaced it by saying that you thought it might be a stupid question. I said, no, it's, I'm so happy you asked me that question because actually I had a disagreement with the publisher I wanted the title to be Pursuing Profit with Purpose and have the subtitle be the sort of boring benefit corporation law and governance. But the publisher thought it was important um, that people understand that this was about benefit corporations uh, and not some other more general topic. And and so they pushed me to, to go the other way and, and I relented. But when it came time to sort of design the cover, I sort of pushed for a cover that made it somewhat ambiguous and made the subtitle uh, almost as prominent as the title. And so, so it was very intentional. 
that you would be confused. Well, and, and I have to share with you then the work that you did with the publisher in, in making that subtitle very prominent worked. And I also have to share with you that the cover is such that it's a book that I would pick up because I go, oh, Pursuing Profit with Purpose, that interests me. But a title, if it was only Benefit Corporation Law and Governance, I would think, eh, I don't, I'm not up for that. Just not up for going to sleep every time I pick this book up. Yeah, so it's funny because you achieved your purpose in that this is 100% as a non-lawyer, a book I would pick up. It was drafted, from my perspective, to be interesting, not just to lawyers, but to really anybody who's interested in the relationship between business uh, and, and positive impact. And, and, and I have to say, as a non-lawyer, it is absolutely drafted in a, in a manner that those of us that have no formal legal training or no legal training at all absolutely would enjoy this book. Yeah, that's nice to hear. So, Rick, it has been amazing talking with you today, and I have such admiration for the work you're doing, and also, just to be quite frank, for the person that you are. I know you from outside of the podcast, and as I was reading the book, I could I could literally hear your voice, and the person that you are really comes through in this book. I want to make sure that listeners can find you, and so your website is frederickalexander.net. That's right, listeners. It's Frederick, not Rick. We've been informal today by calling him Rick, but go to frederickalexander.net to get to his website. Now, you can buy Rick's book, Benefit Corporation Law and Governance, Pursuing Profit with Passion, from his website or at amazon.com. Now, at his site, you can also check out Rick's blog and Benefit Corporation news that's out there as well. Finally, if you want to catch up with Rick at the day job, you can find more at BenefitCorporation.net. That site has a directory of B corporations that I found very interesting. And also do not forget, and we're going to link to this as a nonprofit if you want to take the quiz and see how you score and see how you need to improve to be similar to a benefit corporation, you can do that at the website as well. Hey, Rick. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Terrific. Thanks, Dolph. This has been great. If you were checking your 401k to see if you have any benefit corporations in the mix, good work and keep on doing that. And always remember that when you're done checking your portfolio, you can find Rick's contact information at our show notes, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. I would love to hear from listeners about this show. I know that it's sort of tangentially related to the nonprofit sector because we're talking about really a corporate structure that is good for society. And we're also talking about the possibility of some opportunities for nonprofits to start benefit corporations. But again, I would love to get your feedback on this. Tweet at me, call, send an email that I can share on the air. I just really want to hear what you have to think about benefit corporations. That is our show for the week, dear listeners. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment.